Good morning, everybody. Yeah. Good morning, everybody. There we go. There we go. Uh, for sake of introduction, my name is Aaron Stern. I'm the lead pastor here. And I uh, just want to take a moment and welcome everybody online. Can we all welcome those who are joining us online today? Yeah. So glad that you're with us. So uh, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in the place where you're uh, filling out an application for something or some sort of uh, uh, registration or, or, or something for whether it's a doctor's office or, or app applying to be a part of some sort of group. And, and you, of course, there's the basic informational questions, you know, name and address and email and phone number and birth date and all those things which are normal. But then you get, sometimes you get to those questions where you're like, that's an interesting question. You know, they're asking about your relationships or your particular habits. And, and, and they might ask a question that's like, that you kind of feel like, well, um, wow, that's a little close, too close for comfort. That's, that's pretty personal. And, and we might find ourselves saying like, do I really want to answer that? Or do I want to answer that fully? Or, Why do you need this information? <laughs> about my, my relational habits or my eating or drinking habits or, or whatever it might be. Well, Jesus, I think, gets up in our grill in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and if we're honest with ourselves and if we fully engage what Jesus is teaching in his most famous sermon, which we're taking uh, the vast majority of this year to study, we started this series at the beginning of February and we'll go into October this year. Um, if we're honest with ourselves and we fully engage it, we will come to moments in all of this study where we will say, hey, little close for comfort. Jesus getting a little up in my grill today. Um, but I actually think that is Jesus' point. If you remember when we started going through the Sermon on the Mount, it talked about what Jesus' uh, primary message was as he as he walked the earth, we find it in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And his primary message is found in this statement, repent, for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is near. This word repent can be translated or, or interpreted to mean rethink everything. Rethink the way you're doing things, rethink the way that you're seeing things, rethink every aspect of your life. I love what Dallas Willard author of the book, The Divine Conspiracy, as well as many others, he says, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from Him how to live the life of the kingdom of heaven into every corner of human existence. In other words, not compartmentalizing and saying, oh, well, you can have Sunday mornings, you can have my city group, but you can't have my Friday nights. You can have this aspect of my life, but you can't have my relationships. But in fact, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, addresses anger. He addresses sex, and he addresses lust, and he addresses money, and marriage, and body, and worry. All these different things that oftentimes might feel too close for comfort, but he's trying to do something and bring about transformation. So we're in a series called Losing My Religion, and we're in chapter 5 of Matthew, and we're going through 
uh, these little vignettes that Jesus highlights where he has this little pattern and rhythm where he says, I have said to you, you may have heard this said, but I say to you. And he does that over and over again several times through the second half of the chapter of, fifth chapter of Matthew. And so we're in verse thir- starting in verse 31 here today where he says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Welcome to Mill City Church, everybody. (laughs) So before we jump in here today, I just want to acknowledge that I know for many in the room today, divorce is not just a subject to talk about or an issue to pontificate on. But in fact, it's very personal, oftentimes very painful, related to trauma and maybe even shattered dreams and hopes. And so Jesus doesn't see it as just an issue to to dialogue around or about in some sort of philosophical way, but actually is leaning into the heart of each one of us. Now when Jesus says, it has been said, or in other places he will say, you have heard it said, that was a common term for a rabbi in that particular day uh, to mean, I am going to quote something from the Scripture. The scripture of that particular day would have been what we know as the Old Testament. And so he says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now he's referencing Deuteronomy chapter 24. And then he says, but I tell you, now this contrast of you've heard it said, but I tell you, is you've heard this said and you might think that this means, but let me tell you the truer, deeper meaning. You think it means this, but I really have something more about this. This is the original intent of this particular passage. Deuteronomy chapter 24, you might, maybe many, if not all of us in the room are like, what's Deuteronomy 24? In the first century, and Jesus' hearers of this particular message lived in an oral culture. So living in an oral culture, uh, they, they would have done a lot of memorizing, they didn't pull out their paper Bibles. Jesus didn't say, open your iPads, or the, the, this, what I'm referencing is going to show up here on the screen. Um, and so when he would have said what he said, which was anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, which comes from Deuteronomy 24, not only would they have known that that's what that was, but they also would have understood the context of that particular passage. Because Everybody, most likely on that hillside that particular day, would have memorized the entire Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We're not in an oral culture, so I'm the only one that's memorized the Torah. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Deuteronomy 24 says this, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance." So that's in the Bible. (laughs) 
this particular passage, Deuteronomy 24, was given as a way to protect women because they were needed to be given a certificate of divorce because men were deserting their wives and thus leaving women in that particular day and age with no legal rights and oftentimes would be discarded by, by society, find themselves in poverty, like living on the streets type of poverty, and have no sense of a future. This Deuteronomy chapter 24 passage is not a command, but it's case law. Be kind of like reading law, uh, the, the, like law books today. It's not God making a statement about whether or not divorce is okay or God's heart towards divorce. It's about mitigating in this ancient culture the devastating effects of divorce on a woman. So that's what was happening in Deuteronomy 24 a couple of thousand years prior to when Jesus is teaching on this hillside outside, uh, uh, near the Sea of Galilee. But in the first century, as Jesus is teaching, there was a raging debate going on over an aspect of Deuteronomy 24, specifically the phrase, if he, the husband, finds something indecent about her. And the question was, what does that mean? And there was two schools of thought. The first school of thought was from the school of Hillel. Hillel was a rabbi, and so Rabbi Hillel and those that, that believed in what he was saying that that meant, his interpretation was that, that it was for any reason. If she burnt the toast, if she had bad breath, if, uh, if, she, if she, even some rabbis would take it even a little bit further and say, if the husband found someone else to be more attractive. And so, essentially, the school of Hillel was advocating for an easy divorce culture. Easy to divorce, easy just to throw it away, any particular reason, if it's a whim or if it's something significant. The other school of thought was the school of Shammai, also a rabbi, and he believed that, that what in the interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24 was about moral reasons only, meaning something such as the something as significant as divorce, or excuse me, adultery, but also what they would have called in the first century indecency, which would have looked like a woman having her hair down or, or showing off her arms, you know, because elbows are so stimulating. Or, or a, a slit in a skirt. See, Jesus in this, these couple of verses, is not giving an in-depth teaching on divorce and remarriage. Jesus is actually weighing in on this raging debate and saying he is rejecting an easy divorce culture. As followers of Jesus in our day, we need to reject an easy divorce culture. We live in, a, in an easy divorce culture. Well, if you want to, you don't, you don't even have to give a reason. But in so doing, in his rejection of an easy divorce culture, what Jesus is saying is he's communicating the importance of covenant marriage and giving women more dignity. Because even in his first century context, women were seen as property. And, and men, 
Men could divorce their wives and then go marry another woman and there was no issues. A woman goes marries another man and there was all these other issues that, that were in play, at play. What Jesus was doing was causing women to be seen as in the same way as men, which in his particular first century day was revolutionary. Absolutely elevating someone who is marginalized. And you might be asking the question, but, but what about... What about if you're deserted? Is that okay for divorce? And what about abuse? And what if it's physical? Or what if it's verbal? Or what if it's emotional? What about abandonment? What about literal abandonment? Or maybe there's like emotional abandonment. What about all the distinctions on all of that? Those are good questions. But it's not what Jesus is addressing here. There are other passages where, where it both, both in the Gospels as well as in uh, some of Paul's letters that go into that in a little more depth. Um, but that's not the subject that we're diving into here today as we're faithful to the text of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, to get into that subject I think is valuable, and I want to recommend a book for anybody who's really interested. Um, a book, the best book on the particular subject that I would recommend is called Divorce and Remarriage in the Church by David Instone Brewer out of Oxford. It's about 200 pages, pretty accessible, um, but goes into it in much more depth. The series that we're in losing my religion, talking through each one of these vignettes. The point that Jesus is trying to make is that you can have something on the outside look good, but have absolute rot and, and death going on on the inside. You cannot murder somebody else, but have your heart infested by contempt. You cannot be having an adultery, adulterous relationship with somebody, but you can have lust just eating away at your soul. And in the same way, Jesus is saying you could not be divorced, but you can have a dead marriage. He's saying you can, you can somehow adhere to this law or to that, that law and still have, have something that's totally going wrong on the inside and in your heart. And so in this particular passage, the goal is not for us to get caught up in cause and exceptions. Jesus isn't doing that. And it was actually the Pharisees who were all into figuring out when is this and what is this and it's okay and we got to make sure that it's exactly perfectly clear and you can't do this and you know don't push these buttons on the sabbath and don't do this with this and don't do that that's exactly how we get caught up into a religious mindset and jesus isn't doing that here instead he's not advocating for us to spend all of our energy and time trying to find the exceptions but instead to engage with the intentions that god has for marriage and God's intentions for marriage has to do with how we approach the relationship. And so I want to differentiate between two different types of relationships, and that's a contract relationship and a covenant relationship. A contract relationship, we can easily think of a business relationship, two individuals, each pursuing their own interests, coming together to make an exchange for mutual benefit. Now we certainly can understand that if you're buying a car, if you're entering into a business deal, you do this, I do this, and we work that out. And we don't think that way when we enter into a marriage relationship, but that's oftentimes the way that it gets treated. Well, if you keep me happy and I keep you happy, then we're fine. If that goes away, then this contract starts to become null and void. Covenant is what God's original intention is, 
And that is this, two individuals, each respecting the dignity and integrity of the other, coming together in a bond of love and trust to share their interests and lives by pledging their faithfulness to one another. So, a contract relationship is transactional. A covenant relationship is about relationship. Contract is about personal interests. Covenant is about mutual purpose. Contract is about benefits. Covenant is about transformation. Contract is about you holding up your end of the bargain. Covenant is about being faithful even when things are tough. And so God is calling us to covenant relationships. Relationships that don't say, well, the grass looks greener over there. In this particular context, she looks pretty over there. He is, looks like a better provider over there. He's saying, don't look over there and say the grass is greener over there. Instead, recognize that the grass is greener where you water. And so water where you are. We long for covenant relationships, but we often settle for contract relationships. I love the question that Gary Thomas poses in his book called Sacred Marriage. He says, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? We live in a world where happiness is the highest value. And so when a relationship, and especially a marriage relationship finds us in a place where we're not happy, then we say, well, I guess that this isn't worth it. This isn't how it's supposed to be. But God is saying it's not that happiness can't reside within a marriage. But what if even in the difficulty it's about producing something in each one of us? Now, I don't think it's an accident that when Jesus gives this little vignette, that it's right after he talks about contempt and lust, and right before, the next one after this, is about oaths and keeping your word. If our desires, whether it be in relationship to anger, our impulses, or desires in relationship to lust, were, com were controlled and we were committed to integrity and truthfulness, I wonder if we wouldn't see a significant decrease in divorce. And so Jesus continues on in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 33, by saying, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, referencing the Old Testament. In this, he's not, he's not referencing one particular passage, but referencing a theme and therefore a collection of scriptures. There's scriptures all throughout the Old Testament that reference uh, fulfilling a vow, or being good to your word, or committing to and following through on an oath. And so he says, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot, even, you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, you might hear that and think, 
Let's see. Last time I made an oath. This last week. Um, none. How many times this last month? Uh, zero. All right. I just get to skip this. I don't know who this is for, but it's not for me today. Not so fast. In Jesus' day, as I mentioned earlier, it's an oral culture. So which meant that, that a business transaction or some sort of agreement was based on a handshake and the trustworthiness of somebody's word. There was no legal document that would have been signed, that could have been taken to court. And so some sort of argument over whether or not somebody was fulfilling their end of the deal had to do with the trustworthiness of their word or the oath that they had made. And sometimes to communicate really strongly, they would, they would, they would make an oath or swear on Jerusalem or my head or God. And so business and society in general was based on the trustworthiness of somebody else's word. So when Jesus says, but I say to you, don't make any oaths at all, they're thinking, well, this is crazy. I, 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 like, like our whole society is going to fall apart. If there's no oaths, if there's no way of saying like, yes, I'll do this, then it, it's going to fall apart. We have nothing to fall back on. Jesus, you're dismantling our whole way of life. But the reality is, and we have to ask the question, is Jesus being literal? Is he being literal to us today? Does that mean that you are not allowed to, if you get married, walk down to the front of a church and face each other, hold each other's hands, and look into each other's eyes and say, I vow to you. Or are you not allowed to stand in a courtroom and put your hand on the Bible and say, I promise to tell the truth, so help me God. Or are you not allowed to sign a contract and buy a house? Because that's an oath. Well, of course that's not the case. Jesus is being hyperbolic in order to make a point, and his point is this. You don't need oaths because kingdom people are people of integrity. And when kingdom people say they're going to do something, they do it. And if they aren't going to do it, they're not going to do it. So you don't need all that other, well, I swear on Jerusalem, and I swear on my mother's, I swear on my grandmother's grave. So what is your word worth? As people of the word, following the living word, our words matter. Jesus calls us to speak with honesty and integrity in a world filled with manipulated news, commitments that mean nothing, and images that are curated to only portray a particular aspect of the whole picture. And so, what does this look like for you and for me? Certainly, it looks like fulfilling marriage vows, but it goes far beyond that. It goes to asking ourselves a question when when we fail, do we have a hard time saying sorry and being truthful about what we've done? Or do we spend time justifying our actions? Or when somebody says, what really happened? And by the way, this is something that I struggled with when I was younger. is telling a half-truth. Meaning I didn't lie. I just didn't tell everything. I only told the parts that made me look good. 
So in a world of dishonesty, followers of Jesus are to be people of truth. Not just knowing and saying the truth, but living it. And living out the reality of what it looks like to, for Jesus to be king and us to live in the kingdom of God. Now that's a bit radical in our day and age. David Brooks, author and New York Times columnist, wrote an article called The Age of Bailing. And he says this, Bailing, not bailing hay by the way, just in case you're wondering, Bailing out, like I'll bail on that commitment. Bailing is one of the defining acts of the current moment because it stands at the nexus of so many larger trends. The ambiguity of modern social relationships, the fraying of commitments, and the ethic of flexibility ushered in by smartphone apps. So it looks like, it looks like keeping my options open. You know, I know that I committed to the city group, but... You know, Tuesday nights, I, what if something else more exciting comes up? So I'll just keep my options open even though I kind of said I was going to, you know, be there. I know that I, I know that I said that I was going to do this, but oh, somebody just invited me to a concert and gave me free tickets. So, I mean, you know, and, and we know more of these things because communication is so quick and, and we can see what other people are doing and we have this fear of missing out. Can we just say something together? I know for some of you this might make you sweat a bit, but let's say commitment together with some gusto like we really believe it. Okay, can we do that? Ready? On three, commitment. One, two, three. Commitment. Oh, yeah, that was good. Some of you are like, did he say it? Did he say it? <laughs> commitment to what we say we're going to do. In this passage, Jesus also kind of talks about all the different things that we might swear by. You might say, well, that seems irrelevant. That was certainly just the first century. But Jesus is actually in some ways making a reference to one of the Ten Commandments. The third of the Ten Commandments is, thou shalt not use the Lord's name in vain. Now, maybe we've heard that before and thought, that just means I don't use God's name in a curse word or something like that. And that may be valuable, but I think the greater meaning is to not utilize God and His name and the weight of who He is to get people to believe you and let you get your way. In other words, to somehow say, well, God said as a way for you. That's kind of the God card and hard to argue with. Or to avoid the work of relationships and integrity within relationships. I think this can look like, maybe you've heard this, maybe you've said this. Maybe this has been said to you. God told me to break up with you. No, he didn't. <laughs> as, if, as if you like didn't want to, but you know, I, I got to do the Lord's will, I, you know, so he told me to. Now, I, I personally think that that is an excuse. An excuse from being honest. An excuse to be truthful. An excuse to do the, not do the, to avoid the hard work of saying something like, you know what, I, 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 I'm going to break up with you because, because I don't like you. <laughs> I, I don't think you should say that like that, but, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but to be 
honest as opposed to, well, God told me to, and shifting blame. That's using God's name in vain. And so what is Jesus saying? Be a person of integrity and stop. Stop using his name. Stop swearing by this. and Stop somehow manipulating and making your word not mean a whole lot. Now this isn't God wagging his finger at you. This is, this is God saying there's a better way to live. Because dishonesty, half-truths, undermines trust and therefore destroys relationships. Weakens relationships. The number of people that I talk to on a regular basis that are crying out for and longing for depth of relationship is huge. But then the way in which we engage relationships honestly, truthfully, with integrity is lacking. Honesty builds relationship. Vulnerability and letting people in to what's fully going on builds relationships, builds trust. And so God is saying, don't undermine those things because you're missing out on something significant within the kingdom of God. I love what Thomas Merton, Christian mystic, says, he says, we don't have a knowledge problem. It's not just about knowing truthful things. We have a love problem. We don't need an abstract love for truth. We need a genuine love for people which will produce truthfulness. Jesus is encouraging his followers on this hillside and us today, be salt and light with your words. Be salt and light with your commitments. Mean what you say and say what you mean. Follow through on commitments that get boring as opposed to the fun, exciting start of something. Honor the commitments you've made. Don't walk away when it gets tough. Be reliable. Be consistent. Be consistent in a city groups. Be consistent in a serve team. Be consistent in, in your support and service of someone else. Be consistent. Show up and show up on time with a smile on your face. I think that in an age of bailing, commitment is so punk rock. Rage against the machine, everybody. And be people of our word. Be people that stand strong. Be people that that say, I'm going to follow through on what I say. And I'm going to give every ounce of energy and effort to make that possible. And that is in a business agreement. That's in my relationships. And that is in my marriage. For those of you who are married, to say, I am going to give every last bit of energy and effort that I can muster and use every resource I can find to make sure that I do my very, very best to honor the commitment that is right in front of me that I've made. I was talking to someone in our part of our house. Her name's Monica. And we were talking about her job and she says she, she shows up on time every day, early. As she walks in the door, she says hi to everybody. And cheery. Follows through on what she says. Follows up on people. Follows up on different things that people share. And I said, and what do people think about you? What does that mean? Small, little things. Do people think I'm weird? And my boss thinks I'm amazing. She just recently got a promotion. 
a significant promotion. I think it was because she showed up on time. Did what she said. Now, I realize we live in a world where each and every one of us are not ever going to be fully faithful in everything we do. There is only one who is going to be fully faithful, and his name is Jesus. That maybe we've had other people around us be unfaithful. Maybe we have been the unfaithful one. In any and every case, there is one who is always faithful, and his name is Jesus. And for some of you here today, as we close this message, needed to cross a line of faith and respond to the invitation of Jesus that says, find yourself betrayed, find yourself upset, find yourself in a tough situation because of the unreliableness of other people, come to Jesus. Find and build your life on the most, the faithful one who will never be unfaithful, even when you are unfaithful. And He's encouraging us to come to Him, put our faith in Him, to trust Him with our lives. And if that's you here today, maybe you find yourself here today for the first time in church. Or maybe you're here first time in a long time. God's invitation to you is to cross the line of faith and say, God, I put my faith in you. It's a simple beginning of a journey. We simply say to God, God, I give you my life. Sincerity, I give you my life going to follow you. I, I trust you. I can build my life on you because you are the faithful one. I realize that the subjects that came up today might bring up and cause sh the cloud of shame to come, be come and float over your head and be, and be a reminder of maybe a shameful thing that you did. Meaning like maybe you were the unfaithful one. The invitation for each one of us in any of our unfaithfulness in any form is repentance. Not finger wagging, repentance for the purpose of restoration and healing. Or maybe you found yourself on the other end of somebody else's unfaithfulness. and Maybe that was in a marriage setting. There's healing. For some of you, maybe it's recent, and so the, the wounds are, are raw. For others, maybe it was years and years ago, but, the, but it's, it's not far from the surface. There's healing. There's healing for all of us, whether we've been the faithful or the unfaithful one. Maybe you find yourself having just been the recipient of someone else's unfaithfulness, meaning meaning you're the kids in the family of a, of a divorced home. And the breakdown of the family has wreaked havoc in your heart and your life. There is healing, there's compassion, there's restoration. And maybe for some of you, and I want to encourage anybody here who maybe finds themselves, maybe you're online, finds themselves hanging on by a thread. You, you feel like marriage is over. There is always hope. And I want to encourage you by the power of the Holy Spirit to persevere. To persevere, 
to continue to know that reconciliation is possible. And you're like, no, 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 not in my situation. We believe that because of the resurrection, the worst thing doesn't have to be the last thing, and there is always hope. I can think of, I can think of four marriages just in the last year that were on the brink. And God turned something around. A miracle happened. They, put, they were putting in the work and of a switch flipped. There is sufficient resources in the kingdom of heaven for reconciliation no matter how far gone your situation might be. There is always hope. And for all of us, I don't know where we find ourselves. I don't know what kind of situations we're in, what kind of commitments. I, I want us all, whether it's related to marriage or otherwise, that we would be people of integrity. And so can we ask ourselves, each one of us in this moment, and maybe sit with this question throughout the week, are there any areas of my life in which I need to follow through? I haven't followed through and I need to follow through. I've made a commitment, but I haven't, I haven't, I haven't honored it. What does that look like? Maybe it's a big thing. Maybe it's a small thing. Maybe you're saying yes to too many things. You need to say no to a few things in order to be able to say yes and mean it. Whatever it might be, let's sit, offer those things to God, repent, and move into the places of restoration and life. I want to take a moment and pray for us all. Father, we need you. We trust you. And Holy Spirit, whatever aspects of this message might have touched any aspect of our hearts. God, I pray that, that we would welcome the healing, restore, uh, restorative work of the Holy Spirit. That you would impact our hearts, and impact our lives. That we wouldn't just be polished on the outside, looking like we're doing the right thing, but on the inside, there's death and, and, and no life. and Things are not as you would call them to be. And so, Holy Spirit, help us to give our energy to the things that bring about life in our own hearts and in our relationships. Have your way. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said...